Welcome to Paranormal, the New Normal. On this week's show, we are interviewing Jim Marshall, the author of Septemics, Hierarchies of Human Phenomena. And I got to tell you, I looked a little bit into this and it is very interesting. I, from what I, from what I understand that is, as I am, I'm science minded, but this stuff is beyond my understanding to some degree, but hopefully Jim here can help me clear some of it up for myself and other, everybody else. Jim, how are you doing tonight? Great. I'd be glad to clear it up for you. Glad to hear that. Most of the confusion is just because it's a new subject. This does not fit into any pre-existing slot. They all fit into this. Yes, I, that, that much I did grasp, and that's what made this very interesting to me because I, I like the idea of everything fitting into something else, kind of like the idea of fate controlling us all through some means or ways. I'm not saying that's similar to this, but I'm just saying that's what I kind of like to compare it to. But okay, why don't we start out by you just telling us what you want, a little bit about yourself, whatever you want to tell. Okay, well, I am the discoverer of hitherto unknown uh, human phenomena from which I created a revolutionary uh, philosophic system called septemics and which I published in a book called Septemics Hierarchies of Human Phenomena. This book would dramatically improve the life of anyone who takes advantage of it. If you want to find out about Septemics, go to septemics.com. That's S-E-P-T-E-M-I-C-S. As for my qualifications, uh, I am a polymathic intellectual whose areas of expertise include psychology, philosophy, theology, parapsychology, science, engineering, mathematics, law, literature, history, metaphysics, military science, political science, physical culture, organization, education, and music. And I hold a Bachelor of Science cum laude from City University of New York. That is a lot of different areas to be familiar with. That's impressive, I gotta say. I wish I was familiar in that many areas, but simply I am not, but. And that, that polymathy largely explains why I was able to discover this when no one else did. Well, why don't you when I, when I saw the phenomenon, because of my polymathic background, I saw what it was, and then I developed it. Very interesting. So why don't we just start this out by you telling us, generally, what is septemics? Septemics is a philosophical science based on the fact that many phenomena related to human beings occur in a sequence of seven levels. Literally, the word septemics means of or pertaining to seven. Septemics comprises a collection of scales or sequences, each of which breaks down various human phenomena into a hierarchy of seven steps. There are 35 such scales which span the spectrum of human experience. And what I mean by that is there is no situation which is going to arise in the life of a human being which does not respond to one or more of these scales. It is universally applicable for humans. There are 24 scales which apply primarily to individuals and 11 scales which apply primarily to groups. So basically you could 
you can go anywhere. You can go to a mall. You can go to a grocery store. You can go anywhere. You could see this whole field just taking place in front of you, basically. I actually experienced that. When I look at people, uh, whether it's uh, via uh, Zoom or on the street or anyplace else in movies, my septemic analysis kicks in and I can break down these people just like the computer and find out where they are in each one of these various areas, 35 different areas. Each of these scales represents an axis against which to evaluate human behavior, which is why it spans the spectrum of human experience. Hmm. So you said movies, does it ruin movies for you? Cause you could tell what's going to happen or. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll just say that would. No. That, I was going to say, uh, it, that wouldn't be good. It, it, it is true. It is true that for many decades, for most of my life, I figured out where movies were going, uh, predicted the end, endings and, you know, all of that. That's been going on since before I had Septemics. And maybe that's what predisposed me to find it. But that sort of analysis is the way my mind works. Interesting. I Kind of wish my mind worked that way sometimes. Maybe some of my life would have gone a little better if I could have predicted the next thing someone's going to do. But and how- since you use the word predict, the subtitle of this book is Analysis, Prediction, and Management of Human Affairs. So each one of these scales will allow you to analyze, predict, and manage some human situation. I feel like this is something that every major rich CEO like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos should read this book. Absolutely. I make the comment in the book that if certain people uh, got a hold of one of these scales, the scale of management, it would change the course of human history. Which at this point we probably could use. Yes. And in fact, I already know, I'm not going to kiss and tell, but I already know of a situation which actually did occur. Huh. Well, I wish you would tell, but I'm not going to force you to tell. Uh, but since I'm you... Very, I'm very uh, reserved about discussing anyone's use of this. I have all of this knowledge, uh, which gives me an advantage over everyone, and I don't use it. For example, I will never tell anyone's level on any scale for a living person. I never do it. Uh, I've worked with hundreds of clients as a human development engineer, and I never told them anything uh, relative to themselves, their situation, and so forth. My skill was to lead them to figure it out themselves. And as I was doing this, I started observing patterns in the way they would improve. Meaning, when my clients would improve, they would improve in a way that was predictable to me. Now, I never told this to anyone but I wrote it down. And after a while, I had all of these scales and I would see my clients move up these scales. So I knew what result the guy was going to have before he had it, which only made me better at what I did. I could predict the outcome without telling the person anything. And I wrote all these down. Now, there was one scale in particular that I had that had six levels, which I knew on an axiomatic level was correct. 
those six levels in the order they existed was correct. However, in 1995, I discovered a seventh level for that scale and I inserted it in. When I inserted it, the scale clicked in mathematically. It manifested a mathematical precision. It became indisputable. Well, I realized I was into something big, bigger than what I was really looking for. And then I asked myself, I wonder if many of these other scales that I have, which had varying levels, of the remaining 30 or so scales that I had, only one of them had seven levels, besides this one that I just mentioned, where I inserted it in. So I said, because I knew what I was looking for, I inspected the other scales to say, let me see if these, if there are additional levels. And because I knew what I was looking for, it was very easy for me to find them. And in a couple of months, voila, I had about 32 seven level scales. Now in each case, when I found the seven levels, they manifested mathematical phenomena. And so therefore I saw that I was dealing with natural law. So as a mathematically minded person, I took 26 semesters of math, loved every minute of it. I think in math, uh, I was able to bring that sort of analysis to human development and Therefore, these phenomena, when they fell out, I was able to see what they were. So then I realized when I had these 32 seven level scales, this is a subject. Because, because these, each one of these 35 scales that I have in my book are based on natural law. They are inarguable in the same way the Pythagorean theorem is inarguable. If you know, uh, geometry, the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, that is axiomatically true. It was true before the earth existed, and it will still be true after the earth no longer exists, okay? It is part of the fabric of the universe in the same way that Planck's constant is, in the same way that uh, the acceleration of gravity at the surface of the earth is 32 feet per second per second. It's provable, okay? It's observable. So I observed these phenomena and because of my polymathic background, I was able to realize that I was into something big. So then I wrote the first version of this book in 1995 and I started to present it to colleagues of mine, highly educated people, people with master's degrees and doctorates of various types, biochemistry, engineering and so forth. One guy was a rocket scientist and so forth. And I showed them this. Every single one of them was blown away by it. In other words, they were enthusiastically uh, accepting of it. They said, wow, this is awesome. So because of that, I turned my energy toward studying this uh, in a scientific way. Now there are 35 scales, each of which has seven levels. That's 242 different levels, each of which had to be verified and expressed in a way that would make sense to people. So this was a big project. I worked on this book for 25 years before I published it. Wow. Because as, as an engineer, I have an irrevocable 
an absolute commitment to the truth, wherever that takes me. It makes me uh, unwanted sometimes because I insist on the truth. And that is what, that is my allegiance. My allegiance is to the truth. I am not a member of any group or sect of any type anywhere on earth. My allegiance is finding the truth and speaking the truth. And that is what I have done with this book. And so as I went through the 25 years, I started giving it to clients. I started giving it to uh, people I knew. And the feedback was universally positive. If you go to my website, you'll see what readers have said about it. Now, they all had different things to say, but they were all very positive. Same thing if you look at all the things that have been written about it. There are dozens of uh, magazine articles and such about the book and about me. They're all very positive. There are reviews that are very positive. Each person obviously is different, has a slightly different take. And that makes sense because I wrote this to empower people. In other words, this subject brings a magnifying glass onto the person, either you as a user to magnify yourself or for other people. You can use this to analyze other people. For example, I can tell you with precision the basic purpose of every president of the United States going back as far as Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Because I have observed these men. They, all of them have been going back that far, were on the radio, were recorded, were in film, were on TV and videos. And a scholarly person like myself could study these people. Okay, and as this went on, I got better and better and better at it. You may recall when Obama came on the scene, he was a, not a well-known person. No, he and wasn't. so when he started running for president, I didn't know who he was. So I studied him, I listened to him, and within a very short period of time, I was able to find him on the scale of basic purposes. Now, when you know a person's basic purpose, what could possibly be more important to know about a person than that? For example, Hitler's basic purpose was to destroy. He was at level seven, the lowest level on the scale of basic purposes. Paul Pot is also at that same level. If you study these men carefully, you'll see they were inherently destructive. They destroyed their own causes. They destroyed their own countries, their own people, okay? Now, up from that is a criminal. A criminal is not inherently destructive. If you get in his way, he will kill you. But they're not out to destroy. They're out to accrue wealth, to, you know, to get whatever they want, to take over the mob. You know, they want custom-made suits and, and limousines and things like that. So they, they don't really want to kill people per se. They just do it if it's convenient for them. That's different. That's not as bad as Hitler, who is inherently destructive. And he made horrific mistakes that caused him to lose a war that he could have won. Yep, 100% agree. And that is because he was destructive. Okay? So if the people of Germany had this book in 1933, he never would have come to power. The Nazi party got 37% of the vote in the 1933 election, which was a plurality, which was how he came to power. 
If the people of Germany read this book, they would have been able to see that this guy is destructive because it's explained with specificity in the book, what that means, how it manifests. And he would have gotten some votes. You know who would have voted for him? Psychopaths, sociopaths, criminals, crazy people, corrupt people, you know, his friends. But that's not enough to get 37%. Okay? So you, you can see that the fact that people have not had this book has caused catastrophes over and over and over throughout the history of Earth. So I have essentially uh, retired from my career as human development engineer in which I helped hundreds because now my mission is to help millions by getting this book out to them. So this book is the result of a lifetime of study, uh, research, meditation, which helped me as far as clearing my mind on a daily basis since I was a young man and helping me to approach things in a very calm and rational way, including my studies. So where I can, I can perceive things generally better than most people. And that's what allowed me to discover this subject. Yeah, I mean, that this, well, I kind of want to ask you what your opinion on Biden is, but you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but. I'm not going to answer it for two reasons. One, as I said, he's a living person and I will never give the level of any person who's alive. It's not fair. It's, it's like if I were to box with Rocky Marciano, okay? I was a boxer, okay? I know something about boxing. I would be asleep in the first 10 seconds. He would hit me once and I would be asleep, okay? So because he, has, he had this immense power. He never lost a bout, okay? Going up against the top heavyweights in the world, he never lost. So for me to box with him would be ridiculous. It's the same thing. I have this septemic power, okay? I can look at a person and just talk to a person and see him showing up on scales and know, analyze a person quickly, easily. Because remember, as a human development engineer, my job was to take a person, all of whom started out as strangers to me, and analyze that person, not dis disclose what I analyzed, but use that to guide the person into a way that would lead to an epiphany over and over and over and over and over as long as I worked with him. Thousands and thousands of epiphanies, okay? So, you know, we would take up one thing and that would lead him to an epiphany. And then we would take up another thing, would lead to another epiphany. Some clients I worked with for uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours, the ones who had enough money to afford that. But uh, when I worked with a lot of people and I got really good as a professional, because remember, I was paid well for this. And so my job as an engineer was to analyze the person, not say anything about it, and then use my techniques, the right technique for the right situation to bring this person rapidly to a resolution. And I did that successfully over a long period of time. And as I said, I started noticing they were going up scales. And so that led me eventually into discovering this subject, which apparently nobody discovered before. Then I worked on it for 25 years because 
I could have written this book very easily as an academic book, but my mission was to give this data to the people of earth so that they can help themselves. Because uh, unless governments outlaw this book, which could happen someday, people can get the book and use it, just the book, okay? The only other thing you might need is a dictionary to help you read the book, but that goes for any book, okay? With just this book, you can lift yourself up by your bootstraps to a better life, to greater success, faster success, more fulfillment, just using this book. And the way to do that is articulated in the book very specifically. There's nothing vague. So we, I mean, we kind of already covered how, how Septemix is beneficial, how it's significant, and how you just kind of want to run how one can improve themselves in their lives. But I want to get a little, I want to ask the question to get a little more specific with it because when I was younger, I had a lot of trouble finding a soulmate. I had a lot of trouble finding a love life. Can this book help people find who they're supposed to find for their love life? Absolutely. In fact, it can save you thousands of wasted hours, millions of dollars in divorce court because it can forewarn you who to stay away from. Because when you meet a person, you can analyze that person against all 35 scales and get a picture of who this person is. And I, like yourself, when I was young, made terrible mistakes. I associated with people I never should have associated with, okay? And paid a terrible price for it, just like everybody else does. But now that I know this, I don't make those mistakes anymore. I run into people who I can spot on various scales and I know just stay away from that person. So I don't get into that trouble anymore. Now, of course, as I was working as human development engineer, my insight into people got better and better and better gradually. So once I had this book and I had the whole 35 scales, it was not, there was no learning curve for me. You know, it was all kind of there and it just put it into an orderly way. The challenge was to write this book in a way that would connect with people. In other words, there is a glossary for every chapter and a glossary for the introduction, which is the longest section of the book to explain how this works. And because of that, a person can read this and know exactly what I'm saying. There's no ambiguity. For example, there's a scale of communication. If you look up the word communication, you see it has like 30, 35 definitions. So someone could easily say, well, what definition of communication is he using? I give a specific definition of communication from a dictionary, but the one that applies in this case. So it helps to get past the semantic barriers that most people have. If you know anything about the subject general semantics, it's almost impossible to get perfect communication with words because even if you know the language extremely well, you don't know which definition of the word the person is using. So I solved that problem. Another problem I solved here is the gradient problem. It's impossible to lose 100 pounds. You can lose one pound 100 times, 
There has to be a gradient. That's why crash diets don't work. Crash exercise programs don't work, okay? This book solves the gradient because one of the axioms of septemics is that you cannot skip a level. It is impossible to skip a level. It's like, if you're on the first floor and you wanna to go to the fifth floor, one way or another, you have to go through the second, the third, and the fourth before you get to the fifth. Even if you go outside the building and put up a big ladder, you're still going through those levels, okay? Whether you take the elevator, the escalator, the stairs, you're going through those levels, okay? And the speed scales are the same way. Now, sometimes it appears that you skipped a level because it goes by quickly or easily. That does happen sometimes. And that's very good news if that happens. It means you're moving up quickly. But generally, as you move up these scales, you can feel it. You, you say, ah, okay, now I'm at this level. And then once you're at the higher level, you can then improve to the next higher level. So it gives you the gradient. See, most people in the world have problems that they can define, but they don't know what the hell to do about it. This tells you what to do about it. You find the level and you move up one level. So let's say your son is having a problem in school, right? There's a scale called the scale of scholarship. There are seven levels of scholarship. You find what level he is at. And believe me, if you study the book, it's not that hard to figure out what level, okay? And then you move him up to the next higher level and he will be able to do that. He will, if he applies himself at all. And if you're helping him, all the better. See, now he's moved up one level. When he's at that level, then you can move him up to the next level. It solves the gradient problem. You know, our education system is inherently flawed. I'm talking about the entire education system of Earth establishment, this idea that you're in classes. And I explain in detail why that does not work. Now, having said that, there are isolated circumstances that where you can do something in a class. If there's a lecture, the guy's up there, he's giving a lecture, you know, and there's 300 students and they're taking notes. Okay, that's okay. Once it gets past that, or, or let's say a laboratory experiment where uh, if you study chemistry, you have to do procedures and the teacher talks you through it. Okay, now I had this, you know, you could sort of do that in the class. But anything beyond that, it does not work to be in a, in a class because learning is, an, is cognitive and nothing's more personal than your own mind. And so I explain how, what makes scholarship work and what makes it fail. And so if you have a son who has, or a daughter who has school problems, you can solve them with this book. That's one example out of 35 skills. Interestingly enough, my son has been having school problems lately. So I may have to look into that section because he's been becoming a little more destructive at school lately, breaking bathroom soap dispensers and whatnot. So, I mean, he seems to have improved over the last month, but definitely could maybe look into that. <laughs> I mean, if it could help it. Yes. I mean, I mean your, your book, but I definitely want to read. Go ahead. You asked about romance, okay? Yes. Romance is one of the most universally problematic areas in human existence, okay? And there are a half a dozen scales that you could bring to bear on that to 
resolve that. Okay, there, there are women I got involved with, I would never get involved with today because of what this book tells me about them. And again, if you study it, it's not that hard to find what a person's level is. I was talking about Obama. I listened to him speak maybe a total of 30 minutes, okay, here and there on the news, okay? And I spotted him, bang. And I have never had any doubt about that. It's, it's, like, it's like a botanist. You show a botanist a tulip, he knows it's a tulip. If you show him a rose, he knows it's a rose. If you show him a daffodil, he knows it's, a, it's his area of expertise. Okay? He can analyze it. And because of that, he can predict. Because tulips act a certain way, roses act a different way. And because of that, he could manage a garden very well. That is exactly how this works. Now, in your introduction, because I did read, I did read most of your introduction, because like you said, it is the longest part of the book. So I did read as much as I could get through and understand. But you comp- you kind of compared it to a belief system or in layman's terms, a religion, which you said it's not exactly the same, but it also depends how you look at it. You want me to talk about that for a second or a minute, whatever? Yes. Okay. So, so how do we define a belief system? I think you're talking about uh, the area of where I say, uh, if you want to call this a belief system, then you could also call geometry a belief system, chemistry a belief system, uh, mathematics a belief system, economics a belief system. And there are people who will, will assert that there are belief systems. Okay, I'm not going to argue with that. But if you, like myself, feel that there is a meaningful difference between something like uh, English literature on the one hand and calculus on the other, you see that there's kind of a spectrum there. Uh, And if you want to call it a belief system, you can. Uh, I'm not going to argue with you, but to me, uh, as a polymath, I think of chemistry, physics, mathematics, as being over at one end of the spectrum and things like psychology and philosophy being kind of at the other end of the spectrum. So uh, there are some areas where it's clearly a belief system, like a religion is clearly a belief system. Uh, But as I said, there there are some people who have different ways of thinking about whether or not something is a belief system or isn't. And that's not important to me. If you want to call it a belief system, feel free to do that. But to me, uh, this has natural law built into it. Uh, uh, as, as opposed to something like uh, theology. Theology, there's not a lot of natural law in theology. I studied a lot of theology, okay? There's a lot to learn there and it's valuable. But a lot of it is about beliefs. My motto is, and this goes beyond septemics, learn everything, believe nothing. That is how I perceive. Learn everything, believe nothing. So to me, belief is not really an important aspect to me. Perception is important to me. So there are certain 
religions that resonate very well with me. I'm not going to say what they are, but it's several, a lot of religions in different ways make a lot of sense to me. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to say that I believe them because it's not necessary. For example, if you ask me who the president of the United States is, I would say, well, I believe it's Joe Biden. I wouldn't say I know it's Joe Biden. Uh, I do know that two sides of an isosceles triangle are equal. And that in a right triangle, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. But I wouldn't go so far as to say, I know Biden is president. I would say, I believe he's president. Now, in that sense, I engage in belief in the way that most people do. But as far as believing in a religion or believing in a philosophy, I don't think that way. Because belief, belief gets in the way of learning. You see, if you try to teach septemics to a devout fundamentalist Christian, he's probably going to reject it. He's going to say, it's not in the Bible. I'm not going to accept it. And he's free to do that. But you see, what's happening is his belief is getting in the way of his learning. Yes, I understand. And my, life, my life is about learning. Not only my learning, but other people. I've had an entire lifetime of pedagogy where since I was three years old, either I was learning as a student or teaching students. Uh, so I've had an entire lifetime of dealing with this subject. And my observation has been that belief stops learning. So I would say, fine, study Buddhism, study Jainism, study Christianity, okay? But once you say, I believe, you're putting up a barrier to learning more. You know, because there are people who are Buddhists who say, oh, don't talk to me about Christianity. I don't believe in it. So they're not learning about it. I want people to learn as much as possible, especially about this book, because this book will lead to a resolution of whatever dilemmas and problems they have. And it doesn't matter whether you are a billionaire who is the CEO of a multinational corporation or a guy on minimum wage. It's the same. It applies the same. So it applies to everyone is what you're saying. Everybody. Absolutely. Across all lines. Across all lines. It applies to all races, all creeds, all genders, all ages. It applies to all human beings. Which is actually interesting because the one scale I was really actually interested in when I was reading the introduction was the civilization scale. Right. Because as a civilization, where are we on that scale? Well, it depends on what you mean by we. First of all, I would not say that there is an Earth civilization. There is society. But I don't think uh, most of what we have is worthy of being dignified with the word civilized. Now, there have been narrow contexts in which there has been civilization. 
Uh, but I actually think that Earth is not a civilized place, although there are pockets. There are certain groups that I've been involved with where they were civilized people, okay? Uh, but the general populace, no. The vast majority of humans are not civilized. Uh, even if they use iPhones, even if they can speak several languages, they're not civilized people. Now, the scale of civilization is, uh, has tremendous implications. It basically it describes how a civilization evolves. It starts with philosophy, and then it goes down from there. And again, in a kind of a mathematical stepwise function. And you can tell how civilized somebody is by what strata of that scale he operates on. For example, philosophers generally are very civilized people because that's the highest level on the scale. The lowest level on the scale is basically what you might call uh, business, <laughs> making money, okay? And look at the people who are focused on that. They're not very civilized people, okay? So that scale, you kind of have to, uh, it's not precise, uh, it's not easily applicable to individual human beings, but it tells you how civilizations proceed. If you've studied Spengler, which I have, he has the theory that every empire goes through spring, summer, fall, and winter. And he goes through the four great empires of Earth and shows how they all went through that same cycle. This is a similar thing to this in the scale of civilization where it's a big look at human activity. It's a group scale. Remember, there are individual scales and there are group scales. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know that's one of the group scales. I did notice that part, but I was just wondering if maybe you could apply to a certain, I don't know, could you, I mean, could it be applied to the United States like specifically and put us at a certain level or is the United States too divided? Well, any place that civilization develops, that's what it's about. It's about civilization developing, it applies to. Uh, I do say in that chapter, where you see the elements of a society focused on the bottom of the scale, that is a very degraded society. And where you see the elements of society focused on the top of the scale, that is a much more advanced society. So a society in which philosophy and religion are important is a much more is a much higher level of society than one in which money is important. So you can you can take it from there. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it almost seems like you're saying the world was a little bit better when it was more almost post-hunter-gatherer society when money wasn't even an object to be worried about, when it was just people did what they had to do to survive. I mean, I don't want to put words here. No, I'm really, but... not, saying, really not saying that because, because uh, primitives are not civilized. In fact, sure. even barbarians are not civilized. Civilized people is, is a much higher level. And 
Uh, there are certain religious sects or philosophic sects that I have studied with. And it was very clear to me that these were civilized people. They were not, you know, if you go into a local bar where people drink beer and have fistfights, that is not a civilized place, okay? No, it's not. Right, right. But if you go to certain ashrams or certain monasteries or certain philosophical groups, you know, you'll find those are much more civilized people. So it, it helps you to evaluate a group or a society because you can see what it's focused on. Now, I mean, since this is a show about the paranormal, it, does this, would this scale help people see possibly that there is extraterrestrial life out there that we, and they might even be among us, we just don't know it yet because we're too occupied with other well, things? Well, first of all, extraterrestrial and paranormal are kind of two different subheadings. Uh, I don't really talk about extraterrestrials because the book is called Hierarchies of Human Phenomena. And that is what it's about. I want to help people, people of Earth, to improve their lives. Having said that, this book definitely fits in the area of paranormal. First of all, I just created a subject that encompasses all of the other subjects all of the other slots that exist, if you go to all the universities on earth and look at all the departments they have, they all are subject to these phenomena. So this book does not fit into any existing uh, slot or box. All the other slots or boxes fit into this book. This is, a very unusual thing, all right, to come up with something like this. Furthermore, I can tell you with absolute certainty, this book is at least a century ahead of current Earth society. That kind of makes it paranormal too. Also, some of the scales, like the scale of spiritual ability, goes into things. It talks about God, gods, angels, spiritual beings and so forth. That definitely gets into paranormal. And for example, there's a scale of um, permeation, scale of permeation. Permeation is the basic ability of a spiritual being. The reason why you get uh, feeling from your body is because you as a spiritual being are permeating it. When the body, when a person ceases to permeate the body, that's death. The being separates from the body. He no longer gets sensation from it, okay? That's death. Now you've heard about people with near-death experiences where they separate from their bodies, where they, they are external from it. And then at some point they come back into the body and then the pain hits them. They all say the same thing. So they exteriorized from the body. Uh, and then when they came back, they reestablished, they permeated it again. Then they got all the pain. 
So permeation is one of the most senior concepts there is for humans. When two people love one another deeply, they are permeating one another very well. And really, you could look at the scale of permeation as a measurement of success. To the degree that you are permeating, you are successful. For example, somebody like Monet, the great painter, was clearly permeating the field of painting at a very, very high level on that scale, probably level two or one, which is why he was able to create hundreds of spectacular paintings. Uh, so people who are, who are failing, who are doing very badly, are low on the scale of permeation. They're not permeating things. So this is clearly getting into a paranormal subject. And I say in that chapter, people who deny the existence of a spiritual being are not gonna understand permeation. It makes no sense. Somebody like Sean Carroll, the physicist, he says, there is no afterlife. There are no spiritual beings. There's just physics, okay? He's not gonna understand that chapter. Nihilists and atheists and people like that are gonna have trouble with that concept. Also with the scale of spiritual identity. They're not gonna get it. It's a concept they don't have. But most people will understand it. The overwhelming majority of people on earth understand that there are spiritual beings, that there are spirits, that there are spiritual phenomena. Some of them believe in ghosts, some of them don't. Some of them believe in the hereafter. But the vast majority of people on earth have some notion of paranormal phenomena. It's very hard to find somebody who has no notion of it. Yeah, I mean, more and more, well, that's, that's actually why I named my show why I did, because it seems that paranormal is slowly becoming the new normal. I mean, it's just it the way, is. I mean, you hear more and more about when I was a kid, you'd be lucky if you would catch the random late, like late night documentary about, oh, Bigfoot or UFOs or, oh, look, there's Larry Nimoy with a new show about aliens finally. But nowadays, it seems like you right. can't, you, it seems like you can talk to anybody in any, anywhere in the world now. And as long as you know their language, if you bring up something paranormal, they'll know what you're talking about eventually. And they'll, they'll either believe That's or right. won't believe, which I find fascinating because right. I grew up loving this stuff. Yes. No one else did. That's why I start. That's why mm -hmm. I, I, this world has been getting better to me because of this stuff. But I mean, basically, that's one, that's one of the one of the positive consequences of the 60s. <laughs> there are some very bad consequences, too, but. If you study history, which I have extensively, you see it's always a mixed bag. No matter what happens, it has good consequences, bad consequences. And you really, in order to really be a scholar, you have to be open to that sort of an approach to see that everything has two sides. And that's one of the good things that came out of the 60s. Yeah, the, the, the yin and the yang, just for, to go back on an older theory about the good and the bad side of everything. But I mean, yeah, the 60s were. Right. But actually, since we're talking about the 60s, I keep, my eyes keep drifting back to one scale in the intro. And since we got to the more mature route, let's go the more juvenile route. 
what is the sexuality scale? I'm dying to hear what this is because it sounds intriguing. Okay. There are seven levels of sexuality. And I make very clear in the text that if you're going to have a romantic relationship with somebody, you have to match up on that scale. If you don't match up, it's not going to happen. So there are, there are people who just have no sex, okay? Like, for example, priests, okay? They don't have sex. Uh, and when you study the scale, it explains why. Uh, so obviously, that's not somebody you're going to match up with. And there are people who are at the bottom of the scale who, you know, who are just... Uh, a very, very sick people mentally and emotionally, they have no sex either. So, you know, there are levels of compatibility. It's not that you have to be at the same level, but some levels match up better than other levels. And so one of the things that happens in relationships is you have two people at the same level. One of the persons uh, through whatever process transforms himself and moves up a level, then he is no longer compatible with his mate. They become incompatible as a result of the improvement of one person on that scale. Or the opposite can happen where they're at the same level and one person goes down a level. So generally speaking, when a person is traumatized, he tends to go down levels of multiple scales. When you see a person crash, that's what happened. Elvis is an example of a person who later in life, he went down many levels on many scales and he died as a young person, tragically. Yes. Uh, and that happens to, you know, a lot, there are a lot of people in that category, Jim Morrison. Kirk Cobain. Right. So they went, for whatever reason, they went down and they crashed. But then there are transmissional experiences where like people who go into therapy or my clients who came to me who I worked with for many years, they all moved up scales, all of them, okay? And the longer they stayed with me, the more improvement there was. This was before I even had this book, before I even had the subject. Uh, although, as I said, I was sort of gleaning these data and using them before it had a name. But the scale of sexuality is extremely helpful. It'll save you from a lot of trouble. Uh, and I can tell you, having worked as human development engineer for many years with hundreds of people, very often I would work on a person. He would blossom, improve, move up scales, okay? In other words, he was thrilled with the results and it would cause the breakup of their relationship because he left her in the dust or she left him in the dust. Yeah, because that one person moved one person moved up the scales and the other person just stayed stagnant in the bottom of the scales. That's right. And even sometimes even if you have two people who both are getting some kind of therapeutic enhancement, whatever it is, whether it's meditation or whatever, even then they will move up different scales. So one person might move up the scale of choice, 
which is a very powerful scale. And the other person might move up the scale of sexuality and it causes the relationship to break up, even though they're both getting better. So it's not unusual. No, I mean, not at all. I mean, a lot of times marriage counseling and all that ends up just the couple just realizes they're not meant for each other and they just decide to split. And right. the lo these levels are a good way of explaining what happens, basically, which right. falls back into that septemics is everything. Like it, it explains everything in the universe in one way or another. Well, it doesn't explain everything in the universe. It explains human phenomena. Human, I'm sorry, yeah. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't go into physical science or animals or anything like that. You know, the, I mean, uh, it's useful to any human being in managing human affairs, but it really doesn't have a bearing on non-human affairs. Yeah, I mean, well, animals are animals. That's a whole different subject completely. I mean, that was actually my scientific major in college was biology. So, I mean... Huh? And of course, you study animals more than you study humans when you do biology, unless you get to the very higher ranks of it, which I never could get to. But but that actually brings me to my next question, though, is do you think that this should be taught in education at some point, like a semester should be taught on septemics at some point? And if so, when should it be taught? The short answer is yes. But as I say in the book, this is a two-semester college subject. If some university said, we want you to come and want you to teach this, I would say this requires two semesters. So it would be Septemics 1 and Septemics 2. Uh, uh, that's what it would take. And it, that would be at a college level. Well, of course. Um, yeah. of, now, should it be taught in high school? No. Uh, I've had a tremendous amount of experience as a tutor fixing the catastrophes made by the education system. I would have kids come to me, not necessarily stupid kids, normal kids who could not get it. Okay. And when I worked with them, they would get it. So I know how to tutor. I know what the process of learning is about. And our education system is broken, okay? Uh, and I discussed this, but there's a chapter on the scale of scholarship and I explain why our system is broken and how to fix it. Literacy is a very big part of that. Uh, most people think of literacy as a, in a binary way. You're either literate or illiterate. No, there are seven levels of literacy. And if a person is at, let's say level six on the scale of literacy, and you treat him like he's at level two, you're gonna have a bad result. You have to teach the person at the level of literacy that he's at. Now, if it were up to me, I would add into every single curriculum on earth, a separate subject called vocabulary, where you just, learn vocabulary year after year after year. There are in excess of 300,000 words in the English language. Nobody knows them all. And even the people who have, have graduate degrees, I know from experience, are not terribly literate. I have a friend who's a doctor. And just socially, I gave her a copy of a novel that I had read that I liked very much. I said, this is a great book here, read it. 
So this is a person with a doctorate, a successful doctor, okay? We're not talking about a dopey person. She gave it back to me a week or two later and said to me, and I quote, I can't read this. Now, this is one of the most famous novels in the world, okay? Millions and millions of people have read this novel. She couldn't read it. So, and I explain in the book, there are, the fact that you have a graduate degree, even a doctorate, does not mean that you are a literate person. If you listen to lectures by doctors of physics, for example, which I do frequently, most of them don't know the English language very well. They don't really know how to speak. Now, if you listen to a lecture from English professors or even history professors, most of them know the language pretty well. But generally speaking, illiteracy is a serious problem. It's a pandemic uh, that there are very few people that really are what I would call literate. Now on the scale of literacy, level four is literate. So there are three levels below that, okay? Levels five, six, and seven, where seven of course is illiterate. And most people understand that. But going up to you know, the various extensive levels of literacy, like someone who's very learned, like uh, William F. Buckley was an excellent writer, excellent. He wrote thousands and thousands of books and articles and things like that. And they were exquisitely uh, expressed in English, whether or not you agree with him or not. So he was somebody who had a very high level of literacy, okay? Now, of course, uh, if you, like, there are many mathematicians, they know mathematics very well. If you want to learn, you can go to them, learn mathematics. But most of them are not terribly literate because of our education system. When you finish your bachelor's degree, you go into a master's program, which narrows you down and excludes other things. So you become a master of physics or chemistry or biology or economics, but you're not learning the other 10,000 subjects that are out there. And that's one of the things that I think enabled me to discover this because I'm a polymath. And what that means is, while most guys were going to the beach, bowling, shooting pool, playing cards, playing video games, going to the movies, I was studying, researching and meditating. Uh, I didn't really take vacations. And, you know, like for example, I stopped watching TV when I was 13. I don't have a TV. People keep giving me TVs and I just get rid of them. To me, you know, TV in the 50s was called a vast wasteland. And it's been a vast wasteland ever since. Uh, in general, I reject popular culture completely. And I focus on serious subjects, serious literature, serious uh, things, whether they're new or not. You know, there are new things coming along all the time that are serious. Uh, but, you know, my idea of a good time is reading Dostoevsky, Thomas Mann, uh, Dickens, you know, people like that. Uh, but as far as like watching TV, I just won't do it. I don't know if you could pay me enough to do it. I don't even want a TV in my house. It's, it's intellectually toxic. 
and counterproductive. So I think my advice is if you wanna be a bright person, a learned person, a person who understands the world, turn off your TV or better yet, throw it out or give it away to somebody you don't like. So you don't even find watching documentaries stimulating? Like even the- I watch documentaries, I watch them on, on YouTube as, as millions and millions and millions of documentaries, okay? And you know, on YouTube, they sort of, the, their algorithm gets hit to what you like and they keep presenting. So they keep presenting me, like I, I watched a, a documentary on um, E.M. Forster, brilliant writer. Okay, from about a century ago. I know the name. I know the name. Yeah, uh, very interesting guy, you know. And so, or like, uh, I, I, you know, I like studying about brilliant people, like Alan Turing. I mean, yes. what we call computers. He basically invented. Yes, so, he did. You know, he's an interesting person. And again, it's not that that I agree with him or I condone. It's just learning. It's learning. Like Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page is a genius. He was also a heroin addict. So do I think people should be heroin addicts? No, but that doesn't mean I'm gonna not like his music. Yeah, of course not. I mean, you can't, yeah. you you have to, I mean, you don't watch TV, so I know you're not gonna agree with this really, but, or maybe you will agree with the theory of this, but you can't judge, well, it goes for musicians too. You can't judge musicians, you can't judge actors and actresses, by what they do in their real life, like that's the, right. You you could you only judge them by the work they put out. I that's mean, right. I mean, the yes, good to go with the that's current. Exactly what I do. Ayn Rand was a horrible person. If you know about her life and the way she acted, she was a horrible person. Okay, she's not somebody I would really want to have for a friend. But she's a brilliant writer. Brilliant. I don't agree necessarily with everything she writes. And I don't accept it, you know, as a belief wholeheartedly, but I have to say she's a brilliant writer. So, you know, on that level, I have the highest regard for her, whether or not I agree. And even though I, she's not what I would call a likable person. And there are millions of examples of that. What's your opinion on Stephen King? Cause I gotta go to the paranormal author. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Stephen King. Uh, you know, I'm not really into the horror, scary type thing. You know, my taste is runs more to serious literature. Uh, and you could say, some people say, well, you know, who are you to say he's not serious literature? Well, he, you know, he's popular literature. I mean, if you're going to break it down, you know, you, you can't put him in the same category with Balzac, you know, and Thomas Mann. I mean, it's just no, you can't. You know, scary stories. I mean, you could put you could put them in the same category, maybe as J.R. Tolkien, or even maybe even Ernest Hemingway. Maybe even that's in that same area too. But yeah, Ernest Hemingway was sort of a sort of a forerunner of like you know a, a good writer who wrote in a popular format. You know, he kind of invented that. Yeah. So. I've read a lot of Hemingway and I like Hemingway. Yeah, Again, I, I'm not uh, him as a person. He was a drunk and he committed suicide and things like that. But 
but uh, you know, his writing, yeah, I know his writing very well. But, and it's, you know, it's quasi popular. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, personally, so, I mean, some of Stephen King's stuff is just plain horror, scary asleep type stuff. And right. then, and then some bit, such as like his Dark Tower series or his, I cannot think of the, the orb. He did a two part book series with another author, then they co wrote it. And both of the, the Talisman, that was the book, that was the first book in the series. And, uh-huh. bas- and basically, both these books just make you, book series just make you question the universe. They make, uh-huh. you, they make you question like parallel universes, like, are we like are there multiple universes where we could slip through them possibly and go to another one mm-hmm. i mean i don't know if you believe in that type of stuff i mean i always kind of did well you know i sort of got exposed to stephen king like many people from all the movies that were made of his books you well, know yeah, of course and none of them were things that interested me or that i wanted to pursue so i kind of put him on the back bench because there are so many things uh, that I'm enthused about pursuing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, I could off the top of my head rattle off 200 books that I'd like to read that I haven't gotten around to. You know, and, and, and no matter how much you read, there's always more. And, you know, again, as a serious scholar, reading is really different from studying. You know, like, for example, I'm I would, what you might call an expert on the New Testament. And in particular, the four Gospels. So in a theological context, I could discuss the, the four Gospels on a graduate level. And again, it's not, it has anything to do with belief. It has to do with scholarship. Mm-hmm. Because especially uh, prior to about 1950, if you didn't know the Bible, it was hard to read literature. I mean, if you read Moby Dick, it's full of biblical references and oh God, yeah. all of the literature, all of the literature going all the way back is like that. Because I mean, Christianity for almost 2000 years was the religion of the Western world. Uh, and so it's, it permeated everything, you know? I mean, if you didn't know who the Jesuits were, they would come up and you would say, what's this? You know, you have to stop and go research it. So as a serious scholar, you know, I, on certain things I studied more deeply than others, you know, like read the Tao Te Ching, several different versions of it, because, you know, different people translate it into English, and those translations are quite different from one another, as is always the case when there's a translation. You don't get the same, it's a different experience. Yeah, I mean, well, speaking of translations, because that actually that made me think of the one book that I've been wanting to read for. Well, I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't even think it's one book, but I've been wanting to read Journey to the West for a long time now, because uh-huh. I've I've heard so many different podcasts like do retellings of parts of it as best they can, and uh-huh. it's it's been translated so many times, but I feel like that book holds a lot of very intellectual ideas that everybody should kind of grasp the concept of. Yes. Well, I've read a lot of literature that was translated into English because obviously there are hundreds of languages 
and nobody knows them all. Uh, you know, I was able to read classical Latin in, in Latin uh, because I studied it seriously for four years. And I can tell you, it makes a vast difference reading it in translation and reading it in the original. It's never the same. It's just not the same. I mean, if you can't read Thomas Mann in German, okay, that's unfortunate, read him in English. So that's what you have to settle for, you know. Yep, I mean, and you, the person who transcribed it could have easily gotten two or three words wrong and that's all it takes to take from the original version and change what they're trying to say, unfortunately. That's right. Unfortunately. That's right. But I mean, we can't all learn every language. Not No one has that time in the world to do that. That's right. And again, if you study general semantics, which was propounded by Alfred Krzyzewski, his basic thesis is that it's virtually impossible to communicate through words with any real uh, specificity or duplication. And uh, he makes a compelling argument. And that is why I went through the trouble of filling my book with glossaries to give specific definitions so that the reader would know exactly what I was saying. Which is a very helpful thing to do. And I actually, I plan on definitely buying your book because I do, I mean, if it can improve my life, I'm all for it. And it feels like it can improve my life if I study it and actually understand the scholarship of it all. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I spent 25 years writing the book because I wanted to write it in a way that would communicate to the general public. Now, what do we mean by the general public? You have, you have a guy who dropped out of high school, he's on drugs, uh, you know, he works as a bricklayer, he's probably not gonna read this book. And even if somebody held a shotgun to his head, and said, read it, he probably would have a lot of trouble with it. So does that mean the general public? Well, you know, I, I think I reduced everything as low as I can reduce it to express to people what it is. I can tell you that the theory and the understanding of what this is, is mostly not in the book. It's in my mind. Uh, because, you know, there's a difference between the phenomenon and how you express it. I mean, if you take Newton's three laws of motion, okay, they're handed down to us verbatim because he's the father of physics. And they're essentially taken for granted by anybody who studied physics. But part of his genius was expressing them in a way that made them not only clear, but indisputable. Yes. And simple to a degree, even he, the way he worded it out made it simple. That's that even a fourth or fifth grader could hear that and understand the basic meaning of it. Which, right. Because I, I can remember learning about the laws, Newton's laws in end of elementary school, probably. And I understood them at the basic as level. If you drop an apple from a tree, it's going to hit you in the head. I mean, it's just gravity. That's the way gravity has to work. Everything falls down eventually unless you build it to fight gravity, such as airplanes or whatnot. But, well, I am 
I find that I found this interview very helpful to understand Septemics more because it's, it's definitely a lot clearer to me than it was than just reading the, trying to read the introduction and trying to work my way through it. But then again, like I told you, I didn't have that much time to really put it into the study of it yet. So, right. but this was so a, what, I, what I say in the book and what I tell readers or my clients is that this is a textbook on a new subject. So you should study this the way you would study a chemistry text, a physics text, a biology text, where you start at page one and you go through carefully, making sure you understand each thing before you go on, okay? And after you finish the book, go back to the beginning, read it again. And when you come to each scale, find your level. If you do that, by the time you finish, you will be a new person, a better person, a smarter person, a more fulfilled person. Also, it's, it, this book is not only to find your own level, it's to find other people's levels. So if you find the levels of the people around you, it will dramatically facilitate your success because you'll be able to sort out who is dead weight, who is a, an asset to you, who is a detriment to you, because you'll be able to see by using this book, you can analyze a person. So basically- and I, went, I went at the end of the book, I went through three actual human beings that I knew very well, and I analyzed them completely with this text, whole 35 scales. And I don't give a name, I don't even give a gender. They're just called subject one, subject two, subject three. And I show you an actual septemic profile of a real human being. So you can see how a guy is high on one scale and down on another scale. That is the norm. There are very few people, as I point out at the end of the book, very few people who are at or near the top of all of these scales. There are comparatively more who are at or near the bottom of these scales. But the vast majority of the people are in the middle, as you might guess from the bell curve. And most of those people are high on some scales and low on other scales. So you can find someone like, uh, like Sean Carroll. I mean, uh, he is a brilliant physicist. He knows his subject well. He teaches it well. Uh, but on the scale of spiritual identity, he has to be near the bottom. He doesn't think he exists. He thinks he's just a body. So that's a perfect example of somebody who's high in one scale and low in another scale. If, is there an example of someone in history you could give us of who actually would be high on pretty much every scale? Well, the person, there are, I don't really talk about that too much, but while well, a person who came up several times when I was trying to illuminate the highest level is Jesus of Nazareth. For example, there's a scale of equanimity, okay? And when he was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, that's the highest equanimity you can possibly have. He wasn't even mad at the people who tortured him to death. So that was the ultimate uh, level one of equanimity. And he's the example I give. Now, there aren't too many people who are at that level who ever even get to that level. But that's the beauty of this book. It tells you where you are 
And when you know where you are, it opens the path for you to improve one level. So if you're at three and you go to two, that's fine. If you're at four and you go to three, that's fine too. Wherever you're at, this book will zero in on you and facilitate your advancement in that area. Also, it's important to point out, there are general scales and specific scales. The scale of basic purposes, which I referenced several times, is a general scale. Every person has one of seven basic purposes and only one. And in most cases, it does not change during a person's lifetime. Most people spend their whole lives with one basic purpose. Now, if someone has some spectacular transformational experience, he might go up a level. Or if someone has some horrific traumatic event, like somebody who's in the Nazi concentration camps and survives, he will be knocked down a level. But having said that, this, that is a persistent trait. Most people are out of a particular level and they stay there. Many of these skills, you can, you can take that scale and you can run it through your whole life. For example, the scale of choice. Everybody wants to be free. Everybody talks about freedom. Freedom is the ability to choose. And there are seven levels of choice. When you read the schedule, you'll see what I mean. And people are at specific levels. But you might be at one level of choice regarding politics and another level of choice regarding your job and another level regarding your wife. So you could take that one scale, analyze your whole life and see where you are, what level you're at in these different areas of your life. And it'll help you to improve because the things that are low, you can bring up by moving to the next level. You can't jump a level, but you can move up one level. And then when you're at that level, then you can move up to the next level. And that is extremely helpful. Now, this is actually like the last question I have about Subtemex, but did you ever think about possibly building a website where people can answer a certain number of questions, whatever they need to answer to have their levels ranked on all these scales? Or is that impossible? First of all, the short, the short answer to your question is no, I never thought of that. Uh, because this book requires insight. People who are at or near the bottom of the scales lack insight. If you find some guy, uh, like for example, the scale of human ability, okay, the lowest level is ignoramus. And every person is at is, is an ignoramus in some areas. Like, I don't know anything about Bulgarian folk dancing. So I'm an ignoramus in that area. Okay? Now, if you ask me about baseball, I'm near the top. I'm an expert in that because I had a lifetime of involvement and experience with it. Uh, but it takes insight to use these. So a person who knows this material can use his insight to help another person to find their level and help them move up. And because of that, any person who mastered this book will have an impact on society because he will help to some degree 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 people just in the course of his life. This is not a book where you're just gonna read it and keep to yourself. That does not happen. 
because once you see it, you see what's going on. You see some person, you know, I talked to a person, I could see this person is at a certain place in the scale of choice. That's where he's at. There's no point in trying to convince him of something from a higher level. He's not gonna get it. For example, uh, there are people who will not make a choice, do not wanna make a choice. These people are the people who will vote for Hitler, Mussolini, Saddam Hussein, or some other dictator because they don't wanna make the choice. Like in the old Soviet Union, they told you where you will live, how much money you will make, what school you will go to, uh, what job you will have, okay? You did not get to make the choice, okay? There are people, believe it or not, who like that. It's a minority of people, but somebody voted for these people. You know, there are people around who, who most of them are dead now, but there were a lot of people around who thought Stalin was a great guy. What about all the people that lionized Hitler? You know, they wanted somebody else to make the choice. Now, you're not like that. I can tell just from talking to you, and I'm not like that. I don't want other people telling me what book I can read or where I can go, okay? Uh, so I'm at a higher level on the scale of choice, okay? So it requires insight. A person who's near the bottom doesn't have insight. That's why he's near the bottom. You see, there are people who, who, for example, it is a proven and accepted fact in the mental health community that sociopaths or psychopaths do not make progress in therapy, okay? This is not a speculation. This has been, this has been known for decades. So if you take somebody like that, like a John Dillinger character or, uh, Charlie Clyde Manson. Barrow. Okay. Charlie, Charlie Manson. Hmm? Charles Manson. Right, right. They, they're not going to make progress in therapy. It's not gonna, and the, and the, the therapists know this. They all know this, okay? You can order these people to therapy. It will not do any good. It's a waste of time because they lack insight. That's why they are what they are. You see, if Hitler had insight, he wouldn't have been murdering harmless civilians. He would have said, this is not smart. This is, gonna, this is gonna cause a lot of people to be against me. You see, even if he hated the Jews personally, he, if he had insight, he would have said, we don't wanna do this. Just leave him alone, you know? He didn't have that insight. He was too crazy to see how stupid that was. And you see this all the time, you know, uh, people who are drug addicts and homeless people, and most of them lack insight. They're not smart enough to say, you know, drugs are a dead end. It's a well-documented fact. I'm not going to do this. So those people, they lack insight. They're not going to be able to use this book. And uh, this book requires an intelligent reader. You know, it's like if you read Thomas Mann, there's a lot in there. Or if you read Moby Dick. And a, 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 a dopey kid will read Moby Dick and say, it's a story about a whale. 
that's not what it's about. I knew those okay? kids. I knew it those has, kids. It has, it has layers of meaning. It's about transcendentalism. It's, it's, it has biblical overtones, okay? It's about the human condition. It's a deep book. You, you could read that book five or six or eight times and still see more in it, okay? So it, it requires an insightful reader. This book is the same way. Now, I tried to make it, to make the ramp a shallow ramp uh, by making it as accessible as I could, but still it requires some insight. So this is not something that you're gonna do on a website. That's not gonna work. All right, I just, I didn't know if there was a possible way to like ask the right questions to get the insight you're looking for from the person doing the questions. Yeah, uh, it's, I, I don't think that's, that's viable. It's too complicated. There's too much to it. Um, and again, uh, people who lack insight are not going to read this book anyway. Yeah, true. People like you, you obviously, you obviously have some insight, you know? And I'm, like everyone else, your insight in some areas is better than your insight in other areas. Of course. But you have more than enough insight to read this book in a questioning way. You have to be able to look at yourself and your behavior and your situation and say, what am I really doing here? I'm not saying you have to tell people about it. I'm not saying you have to reveal it, but you use it for yourself to, you hold up, this is like a mirror that you hold up to yourself where you can inspect yourself carefully. And you know, like when you're shaving, you know, you do it in a mirror, you pay attention to it, you know? So it's a similar type of a process. Uh, but I know, again, I worked on this for 25 years and I've had people read this book, all kinds of people, college kids, corrections officers, housewives, you know, read this book and, and be knocked out by it. So we're not talking about intellectuals, or academics, uh, or even well-read people. Uh, but it's it, but you have to want to get better. That's why I say this is for people who want to improve themselves or their lives. Yes, I, it definitely is. And as I, I've always been one of those people who has always been trying to improve their life in one way or another. So I definitely am going to be checking this out. And I, I actually know a few, I know a few people. My brother included who would love this book and they it would probably be the one thing he would talk about for if he read this book and understood it he would talk about this non-stop i could see that he's that he's that kind of person he loves he and lo that's, that, that's that's how i know that this can make a serious impact in society because as i said when people get it they say wow you know, they want their girlfriend to read it. They want their son to read it. They want their father to read it. And even if they can't get them to read it, they can sit down with them and help them sort through, like you were talking about your son having school problems. You can take the scale of scholarship and with that alone, help him. Because it tells you how to make a scholar. What it is that makes people not be good scholars and what makes them good scholars and how to inculcate that in a person 
beginning at the bottom of the scale. Yes, most definitely. And I have nothing else to add on septemics. So unless you have something else to add, I think we'll move on to the final segment of our podcast. Okay, I just want to close the comment. Yes, I want to say this. The data in this book are vital for every human being and can help you to achieve your goals faster and easier by explaining what might otherwise seem to be inexplicable or random. If someone were to invite you to a rendezvous, you would certainly expect them to tell you the exact location and perhaps also how to get there. Needless to say, it's very difficult to get somewhere if you don't know where you are, don't know where you're going, and don't know how to get to your destination. Now, this sounds idiotic, but most people do this regularly, so much so that it's considered normal. This book can completely solve that. It can tell you with specificity where you are, no matter what your situation is, financial situation, if you're wondering about politics, who should I vote for? If you're wondering about what subject should I go into? How can I improve my life? Whatever is going on with you, there is one, or in most cases, several scales here that will facilitate a resolution of that. Very well said. That, that, that actually makes perfect sense to me what you just said. That's, you can't know your future if you can't see your past or you can't see your present. To put it simply. Right. To put it simply. But. Yes. And realize, until I discovered this and studied it myself, I didn't know that. I had to first discover the phenomena. And then when I discovered the phenomena, then I had to create Septemix, even though it did, ha did not have a name until right before I published it. But I had to give it a name that would work. Uh, and as I went through it, as I researched it, as I studied it, and as I got feedback from people, I was able to perfect it to a point where a person like you, or really almost anybody who would host a podcast, will be able to use this book to dramatically improve his life. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even know if it would be able to host a podcast because I've heard plenty of podcasts out there where it doesn't seem like the people hosting them have much insight to anything, but they're just repeating. Well, I suspect. I suspect because of the nature of my subject and myself, the, the people who want to interview me are people who are interested in this type of thing. You know, people who are, uh, I mean, I'm able to talk about sports, but I'm not interested in being interviewed about sports I'm, because I'm trying to get this book into the hands of the public so people can use it to benefit themselves. And, you know, it's available in hardbound, softbound, an ebook. The ebook is very inexpensive. For a, for a small investment, you can completely change your life using this book only. You don't need to rely on anybody else. You may need to refer to a dictionary from time to time, but that goes to any book. Any book. I mean, when I read novels, I stop and look up words. Yeah, I mean, I. I'm one of those people who reads a book and rarely needs a dictionary because I always excelled at English, but there have been times even when I like 
will be reading something usually for college that or when i was in college that there are certain words that just escape me but thankfully everybody has a dictionary in their hands nowadays with a cell phone so all you gotta do is google it and you'll find out what it means that's right that's right you know english is not an easy language artist there is a, uh, one of the hardest ones there is spanish and italian which i know pretty well are much easier languages easier to learn easier to pronounce, easier to speak, easier to read uh, because of the simplicity, you know. Uh, English is, it takes a lot to really master English. Uh, it takes a fanatic like me who, you know, I actually carried an, a full-size dictionary with me everywhere I went for 10 years. That had to be heavy. <laughs> so that I would always build always be able to look up the word. Yeah, I can't imagine carrying that around for 10 years. That's got to be... But that's devotion. That's devotion is what it is. Yes. Well, if you have nothing else that you'd like to add at this point, I mean, we'll get to where people can find your book and find you at the end. But if you got nothing else to well, add... I, I mentioned earlier yeah. No, I mentioned earlier, go to go to my website, septemix.com. It's got a ton of stuff there. And if you look at everything on the website, you'll have a really good idea about how this impacts people, how pe many people besides myself perceive it, uh, review it, react to it, and so forth. Uh, and you can read some of the sections of the book, which will give you a taste of it and tell you a little bit about what it is and what it isn't and so forth. Yes, which I but The will... main thing I have to tell you, one thing I just want to say in closing, I would bet my life that these scales are correct. Now, you may want to quibble with what word I use to express it or how I explicate it in, in the text because those are always issues. Those are semantic issues and language is imprecise. Uh, but I am telling you, these skills are like the Pythagorean theorem or the three laws of motion. They are there. Now, you don't have to use them. You don't have to use the three laws of motion. You don't have to use the Pythagorean theorem. But I can tell you as a mathematics student, I don't consider myself a mathematician because I don't want to dignify myself with that term. But as a math mathematics student, I use the Pythagorean theorem Continuously, I solve all kinds of problems. It's, it's so deeply embedded that once you know it, it's tremendously useful. And that is the way this book is. It, the, the scales, I am telling you, the scales are correct. Yep, which I honestly will look, I will look forward to, the re to reading this book fully and studying it. And I also will put your website in the description for this show just so people have an easier way just to click on even if they want to find it. So I truly believe people should look, should look into this. But that brings up, and it is getting late here on the East Coast, so this is going to bring us to the next, <laughs> the next segment of our show, which has officially got a name now, and it's now known as Jeremy's Creature Features. And to our listeners, okay. who, heard, to our listeners who heard the first episode last week, well, actually just dropped three days ago 
you know that this is where I like to ask my listener about cryptids or supernatural paranormal forces picked at random by me and just they can answer with a yes or no whether they believe or not or they can give me a reason why or why they believe or why not it's up to them i like to leave it up to them and i like to okay. see where this conversation takes us and okay. I'm, a, I'm a star for the common one with jim because i i want to hear if do you believe that there are bigfoot and sasquatch out there that we just can't seem to find the solid proof of but so many people believe it do you well as i said earlier my motto is learn everything believe nothing so i am fairly well informed about sasquatch and i would say uh as an engineer there's overwhelming evidence that there's something out there that exists uh then so, you know, I would give a very high probability that it is something, whether you call it Sasquatch or the abominable snowman, it's probably the same creature. Uh, it's, you know, I would give it a high probability that yes. Uh, but I don't really have to decide whether or not I believe or not. In other words, I've studied it. I have my ideas about it. And what it is is what it is and whether or not i believe it doesn't affect that well put well put but if this creature does exist do you think it's something that has been here all along since prehistoric times and we just it and maybe humans dealt with it back in the native american times and stuff like that because there are i'm sure as you know there has been legends of native americans dealing with tribes of hairy men. Well, I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's there are so many possibilities. Uh, it could be, you know, a creature that evolved and has been on Earth as long as man. It could also be uh, a, creatures that were marooned here by ETs and just proliferated. So they could have just been dropped here 200 years ago. I'm not propounding that theory. I'm just saying that's that's as good a theory as any. Actually, I'm not even saying there are ETs. Saying that that's that's another possible way to interpret it. Actually, it's funny you went in that direction because you kind of read my mind as a segue into the next creature. Because I've heard the theory before that what if Earth is a prison for Bigfoot species to get dropped off on? by other alien species who are using it, who are their jailers, kind of, and putting them on Earth as a prison. Maybe the maybe the Sasquatch are a smart species than us, and we just don't know their language, so we can't comprehend that. I mean, it's, it's a wild theory, but I've heard it before, and it's always kind of stuck in the corner of my head when it comes to Sasquatch. Well, I will say, I've come across this idea that Earth is a prison planet, many times in different books by different people who did not know one another. This is not uh, a, a, an unsupported theory. There's a lot of uh, people who propound that theory and there's a lot of evidence to support it. 
Yeah, which which I mean, it's a it's an amazing, interesting theory. I mean, there's so many different rabbit holes you can go down with this theory. I mean, obviously, we're not going to go down the rabbit holes now because we'd be on here for another five hours if we wanted to do that. But right, let's jump to. I mean, we already kind of talked about aliens to some degree, but do you believe there are? I mean, obviously, there's different types of aliens if they do exist, because there's not going to be just one species out there in the whole universe, and every alien's not going to be the same species. I mean, do you believe in, like, reptilians, greys, or insectoids, however you want to put it? Well, again, I want to say my motto is learn everything, believe nothing. So belief is not an issue for me. For me, it's about perception. For example, if I go on YouTube and I watch a presentation, all right, like, you know who Corey Good is? I've heard the name, I believe, but I never actually looked into it. Corey Good is a person I've listened to speak on the internet dozens of times in different uh, contexts. Uh, and he claims that he... Uh, was part of the uh, the Earth space program. The Earth has several different space programs that they have anti-gravitational ships that go not only all over the solar system, outside the solar I mean, there's a massive amount of stuff on YouTube from different sources. And, uh, you know, you have to sort of evaluate, well, how credible is this person? I mentioned his name because he's someone who I find absolutely consistent and very credible. And the stories he tells are astounding to most people. To me, as a scientifically minded person, I don't have trouble with stuff like that. I mean, I would say as a person who's very well grounded in physics, uh, physical science in general, uh, astronomy, uh, mathematics. I mean, I'm quite open to what the possibilities are. Uh, and so I would say the idea that Earth is the only planet that has intelligent life is idiotic. Yeah. You have to be either a blithering idiot or a complete ignoramus to think that. Because the, the evidence against it the scientific evidence, the documentary evidence, uh, evidence from witnesses. It, it's so overwhelming. There have been literally millions of sightings of UFOs. And most of them are from very credible people. They're not crazy people. Uh, so, you know, to think that they're all just weather balloons or inversion layers or whatever else the CIA wants you to think that you'd have to be really stupid to believe that. By the way, you know, the term conspiracy theory was invented by the CIA to discredit witnesses. Did you know that? I did not. I don't think I knew that. I may have, but I, I, it's not ringing a bell. Yeah. So I, don't, I don't think I did, but it makes a lot of sense to me because like... Yeah, well, going all the way back all the way back to Roswell, 1947. Uh, in fact, there is uh, a writer, his name eludes me at the moment. He wrote a book right before he died. 
is called Selected by Extraterrestrials. Uh, William, oh. I can't think of his name. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. I just can't think of his, he, oh my God. He's, he's a design genius who, was, who uh, could look at, for example, a battleship for, for, as, for an actual fact and then go home and recreate it in 3D. Okay, he had like an eidetic recall. And he made one of these ships and it was so impressive that his, his father had it put in a window, a display window. Well, some guys from Washington are walking down the street and they see the ship and it had secret weaponry on it. So they tracked down this guy's father, brought him in, thought he was some kind of a spy. Where, and he said, look, my son made the ship. I don't know anything about it. I took him to see some ships and he went home and he created it. Well, this guy was brought into the United States Navy at age 17, went underground and was involved in secret uh, investigations and uh, even development for his whole life. Going back from uh, you know, World War II, okay, he just died about a year ago. And it's all in this book, selected by extraterrestrials. Now, again, I ask me, do I believe it? I listened to this guy speak many times, and I found him extremely credible. Uh, he spoke with great specificity about the fact that uh, it was reported to uh, the United States Navy by 39 different spies who were embedded in Nazi Germany that the Germans had flying saucers. Well, I mean, yeah, in Nazi Germany, you can go a lot of different routes with the stuff they were working with. I mean, you can go the occult route, you can go, yeah. you can go ufology route. You There's can go a, lot, a lot of books on it. And I've either read the books or listened to guys there's, there's one guy, again, I don't remember his name. He's written six books on it, and I've listened to him speak many times. He holds a doctorate. He's very learned. There's nothing uh, opinionated. You know, he just says what he studied, what he learned, what this guy said, you know, what they found, what the evidence is. And it's all about the fact that uh, not only the United States government, but all of the governments of Earth have been keeping this a secret from the general populace. And there's lots of people now who have come out and spilled the beans about this. And many of them are on the internet. And if you want to find them, you can. Oh, yeah. I mean, the internet has there's opened a up a world. Bob, there's a guy named Bob Lazar, okay? I know that uh, name. Who is a physicist, okay? So I've listened to him speak again. I have a science and engineering background. When he talks about elements and processes, I know what he's talking about, okay? Now, he didn't make this stuff. He's not some guy who doesn't know what he's talking about. And he spoke with great specificity. He was hired by the United States Navy to go into Area 51 and to reverse engineer a flying saucer they had. And he did that. 
And he's shown all of the evidence. He showed the checks that were written to him by the US Navy for the work he did, okay? And he tells, he explains their whole propulsion system, how it works, okay? He was paid to reverse engineer this thing. He was inside the ship and he says, it's, you know, like for people who are like three feet tall. And he tells the whole explanation, how it works. They use element 115, which uh, they use uh, a, a nuclear process where it converts, the energy converts directly into electricity. So we're talking about millions of volts that were generated from a small amount of element 115. Element 115 does not exist on Earth. It has to be brought from someplace else. And he says that the government has a stockpile of this stuff. They won't admit that it exists. In fact, I know people in the CIA who have been involved in these programs. I have a member of my family who disappeared into the CIA uh, with a doctorate and has been there all along and is up to his eyeballs in all of this stuff. So you have to just realize that the government lies to you continually, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It's their job, it's they, basically their job. Right, and it is malicious because they have zero point energy that they will not release. They have anti-gravitational ships, uh, look up the Lockheed TR-3B. It's an anti-gravitational ship. Many thousands of people have seen this ship, okay? They come in various sizes. Some of them are very big, some of them are smaller. It's completely anti-gravitational. And I can even tell you the engineering, how they do it. Mm, interesting. Because I know physics, and it's been explained to me by designers and physicists exactly what happens. It's called torsion physics. They get liquid metal, like mostly mercury, spinning at 25,000 RPMs. And then they get another uh, rotational device that also does the same thing, but spinning in the opposite direction. When you move metal, it throws out an electrical field. That's how a motor works, okay? So now you have this electromagnetic field being thrown and they then take these two uh, rotational devices. They bring them in close proximity. And when you do that, it creates an anti-gravitational field. The Lockheed TR-3B has, if I remember correctly, an 87% anti-inertial effect. So that means that if the, if the ship weighs 100 tons, uh, after they turn on this generational field, it weighs something like 17 tons. Hmm. In other words, the inertia is dampened. So therefore, a small amount of propulsion will make it go spectacularly fast because it its mass is eliminated, okay? So that's how the, the TR3B, so between the element 115 
uh, which they treat in a nuclear way, which converts directly into a massive amount of electricity. Plus, combine that with the, the Bifield Brown effect. You know about the Bifield Brown effect? I don't, actually. I'd never heard of that. T. Thomas Brown was a physicist who was ahead of his time. He actually got kicked out of several universities because of the theory he propounded. Eventually, he hooked up with a colleague of Einstein called Bifeld. And because of his notoriety, they worked together and they proved this phenomenon. This phenomenon disproves the third law of motion and the first law of thermodynamics. It is in use in high-tech military plans. It's in use. Like the B-1 bomber, the B-2 bomber, all the advanced technology, they use the Byfield ground effect. And what it does is if you polarize a piece of metal so that all of the positive charges go to one side and all of the negative charges go to the other side, the side where the positive charges will move in that direction. You don't need propulsion. All you need to do, but you need a massive amount of electricity. So if you use element 115, which converts directly into electricity, you can harness billions of volts of electricity, and then you can use it to create the Byfield Brown effect on a ship. And so that propels the ship. Makes it makes you, sense. You just you just control uh, where the charge, where the electricity is going, and the ship goes that way. When you add to that the torsion physics of reducing the mass to a, a, a minimal amount, you realize that, you know, it, this explains the phenomena that millions of people have explained. Well, they see uh, UFOs that are going a high speed in one direction, and then without slowing down, they're going in a high speed in another direction. The only way you can do that is by inertial dampening, because the people in the ship have their inertia dampened, just like the rest of the ship. So there's very little momentum involved because momentum is a function of mass. And if you have very little mass, you have very little momentum. So uh, if a ship did not have inertial dampening, you put a human being in there and you change direction like that, you'd kill them the yeah. first time you Oh, you'd look, you would liquefy their insides, yeah. Right, so, so all of this stuff used together, it's, it's going on. And the Americans are not the only ones who have this. The Chinese have it, the Russians have it. And it's a well-kept secret. They're all in collusion with one another to keep these things secret. Uh, and a lot of it is because of the oil people. Because you see, when zero, when you have these aliens who come to earth, they're not coming here in reaction engines. Reaction engines, like Elon Musk is using, they're obsolete. They're primitive. They don't use reaction engines. They use these other technologies. So they have zero point energy. Uh, so I've seen demonstrations, lectures. I've read about all this. All of this stuff is real. So there's, there's a lot of science that's just kept secret. Now, there are a few, uh, 
scholarly people like myself who are willing to spend hundreds of hours ferreting this stuff out and studying it. But I can't really tell many people about it because A, they won't know what I'm talking about. B, they won't believe it anyway. So why discuss it? But uh, all these things, you can go back later and look at the, listen to this lecture again, and you can look up all these things. T. Thomas Brown, he was a Naval officer, okay? When the government found out that his system worked, the whole technology disappeared, became a black project. Of course. Okay? And that's what they do. Just like with Tesla. Or when Thomas Trump, the president's uncle, was the representative in charge of the United States going into the home, which was a hotel room, of Tesla, and they confiscated trunks and trunks of all of his notes. And it all became secret. And Tesla just disappeared. Well, he died. Well, he, yeah, so, but how? Know, he, he, was, he was old, you know, uh, but, but anyway, it all just went into the government. And there's all kinds of things that they have that they're keeping from us. It is more evil than anything done by Hitler, what these people are doing. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is, but... If it, they released all this, we wouldn't even need roads. We could have... They have small anti-gravitational ships the size of a car. They make virtually no noise. They, they don't go on a road. They just lift up. And they make no noise because they don't use normal propulsion. As, okay. someone, as someone who drives for a living, I would love to have that technology come out to save me money and just to make my day go by faster yeah yeah roads would be obsolete which would be wonderful for the environment instead of paving over forests they could just leave them there mm -hmm. because they have they would have reliable you see once you have anti-gravitation you don't have to worry about crashing like airplanes and helicopters do yep. gravity Gravity is not a factor anymore. It would be a changed world. That's for sure. And that's why they keep Ooh. it secret. Because they don't want... It's going to come out. I, I don't know if it will be in our lifetime. They are allowing little bits and pieces. I don't know if you noticed the Air Force admitted yeah. to some of this recently. Oh, yeah. I noticed that the government, the government was supposed to release, right after COVID started, the government was supposed to release what they know about UFOs. As far as I know, yeah. they, they still haven't, but right. Well, been... they they what's what's happening is uh because people like Bob Lazar, you know, they try to kill Bob Lazar, which is not unusual. Then when they didn't do that, they made him disappear. You know, they can go into universities and just wipe out all the records. Oh yeah. Of course. Yeah. So they try to make him disappear. So he he just, you know, he's got a business now and making instruments, you know. Uh, but so he said, well, the only way to protect myself is to just spill the beans. And then if they kill me, they're just drawing attention to the veracity of what I said. Exactly. So a lot of people have, a lot of people have done that now. Also people like William, I can't, I can't remember his name. The guy who wrote the book, um, 
what, what did I, I cited it before, selected by extraterrestrials. Uh, you know, he was involved with all these secret programs with Boeing and everything. All these technologies uh, are in these aerospace companies. See, the way the government prevents us from finding out about it is they give it to Boeing or Lockheed or somebody. That's a private company. You have no right to their, to their records. That's how they keep people from finding out about it. They've been doing this for many decades now. So the aerospace companies have all this stuff. And a lot of the technology that has come out over the past 50 years is ET technology. And it was allowed to come out so that specific people could make money off it so that they could fund these secret projects. That makes sense to me. And it, it's something I've always believed. I mean, I'm always, I've believed for decades now that the government's hiding stuff and it's just a matter of time till it all comes out. I mean, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're going to hold on to what they can and there will always be roads because at first, if they ever do make anti-gravity vehicles, they'll only be for the rich. And it's going to be, right. it's going to be that way for a while. And the middle class, lower class people are going to have to use still pay for gas probably at crazy prices by that point just to get from point a to point b to get groceries but well we've been talking for about two hours jim and i do have to work in the morning so <laughs> <laughs> i okay but well, i thanks, it's been a fun time i've learned a lot which i love to learn so this has been a very good experience for me and i actually would love to have you back on the future at some point to talk about not even if you believe or not, but just your theories on some other supernatural, paranormal, cryptid, different species and whatnot topics. Okay. That's what I'm looking for. So um, if the, you already said the people can find your book, Septemics, at on Amazon, uh, Kindle, any e-reader probably, you can find it hardcover, hardcover softcover on any site that sells books most likely but especially amazon i know that so if you just if you just put the word septemics into a search engine you'll get a flood of responses including all of the people who are selling the book exactly so in this day and age everything's easy to find if people want to find this they'll find it and hopefully you being on here will get some more people to want to find it and improve their lives a little bit if they can understand it and have insight into it, of course. I want to say, I want to say, if you read the book and you have a question, my contact information is on the website. And every once in a while, a reader will call me up and ask me to clarify something. And I'm happy to do that. Which is something no other author usually does. So that's an amazing, that just shows how much Septemics means to him it, sh it shows it just shows how much how much he's dedicated to this topic and how much of his life he's dedicated to i mean we we know 25 years is i don't think i've ever heard of an author writing a book for 25 years and i have so much honor there's so much honor in that and i have so much respect for you for doing that that's devotion so is there any, so basically that's that's the way people could contact you, Do you you're not on social media at all i assume because Okay. Yeah, I'm on social. I'm on all the big sites, Facebook and everything else. 
But you if, you go to if you go to Septemix.com, everything is there. Everything that you want to see is there. One nice, easy location. That's the way you do it. And as all my listeners know, or to all my new listeners, you can find me as Jeremy Bryant on Facebook. Paranormal, the new normal Facebook page will be starting within the next couple of weeks as the show gets its first five, six episodes out. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram as Juggalo Bastard, which also brings me to the other podcast I do, Bracket Bastards, with my four or five friends, depending who's on that week, where it's a pop culture bracket where we break down different movies, TVs, shows, music, anything you could think of. We even might have a paranormal bracket coming up eventually, which I'm looking forward to that one, but we'll see when that comes up. It's going to be a little while still. Well, okay. Jim, Jim, I'd like to thank you for being on the show tonight once again, because it was a very entertaining show and I can't wait for people to hear it. And to our listeners, I will see you next week.